to define a word in the biblical text, a phrase, you do sometimes required a diachronic study because the term is not explicitly defined in a place. So you have to start at the beginning of the Bible and go all the way through trying to find those situations and circumstances that would give you clarification on meaning. However, on this term, there is no need to begin with a diachronic study in the Old Testament when you can go right to the New Testament where the term is actually used and in the context, that context determines what the author is intending and then you confirm whether it in fact relates to Old Testament's text. Now, friend, where in the Old Testament does the term church occur? Where? The word church. What does the word church occur in the Old Testament? Nowhere. It doesn't occur anywhere. So by definition, you would have to say the word ecclesia. The word that we translate church from, the Greek word is used, it refers to an assembly. It doesn't refer to the thing called the church as an institution. It doesn't occur in the Old Testament at all. So by definition, we would have to say that the Old Testament doesn't apply to the church at all. Yet you and I know that it does, and we know it does because prophets, apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, showed us where the Old Testament applies to the church. So just... Just because the term church doesn't occur in the Old Testament, you can't say, well, that passage doesn't apply to the church. You can't do that. You have to allow God, who knows his word, to tell you what his word means, particularly in places like that. For example, the word church does not occur in the book of Joel. And yet we are told that Joel prophesied the very beginning of the church. How could he do that? It's because you have to, you have to check, friend. Now... Great Tribulation, what is it? Yeah, good question. Matthew twenty four fifteen. for then there will be a great tribulation. Notice it says a great. It doesn't say the great tribulation. Matter of fact, no article. In the context, he's not indicating a definite. It is an indefinite. Now, from there, you simply begin to say, okay, there's going to be a time of distress. If you want to use the word time, I'll just say a great distress. We turn back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, and we would find cognizance. Yeah, he said there's going to be a time of distress. However, you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14, it says, So I say to him, my Lord, you know the answer. Then he said to me, these are the ones who have come up out of the great tribulation. Now we have the term defined, the actual term, the great tribulation. In answer to the question, where these people come from, he told him, out of the great tribulation. So is the great tribulation a place? If I walk up to every one of you in this room and ask you, where are you from? You wouldn't say 2008. You wouldn't say, about 1956, I'm not sure the date, I forget. You would say, I'm from St. Louis, I'm from here, I'm from there. You're from a place, because the question, where are they from, implies a place. Yet the angel answered it with a when. 
They came during a particular period, he says, these people came, and they got, it's called the Great Tribulation. Now, the most probative question, the only question that you really ought to be interested in, is whether the Great Tribulation is in fact the wrath of God. That's really all you're interested in. Because if it's, if it's the wrath of God, you out of here, you gone. But if it's not, you don't have to be gone. To which you should be buying property somewhere in a hidden place. Maybe. Okay? The Great Tribulation is an unknown length of time of unparalleled persecution by God, of God's elect by Satan and his Antichrist. It is unknown length because the text, through progressive revelation, informs us that God is going to cut it short. In the book of Daniel, it was said to be three and a half years. Later on, he says he's going to cut it short. If you're going to cut it short, it can't be cut short to three and a half years because that's how long it was from the start. It has to be shorter than that. To which the text, as he often does, clarifies. Now, the Great Tribulation is not the wrath of God. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah... Chapter 30 is talking about the eschatological day of the Lord, which is the wrath of God cleansing Israel to bring it to its fulfillment. It is not the great tribulation. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, just prior to explanation of all this going on, it says, Now when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar stone those that had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given they cried out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a long white robe. They were told to rest for a while longer until a full number were reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been killed. Now, this is that great fifth seal. Fifth seal of four earlier. Now, you asked a very interesting question. They've been killed, they're in heaven, and they get a committee and they go ask God a question. When are you going to start punishing the people responsible for our death? Now notice the text, please. They asked him a question. They cried out with a lot, how long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth? That question implies that the judgment has not started. That God's judgment has not started. That's why they asked the question. Now, either they are, they're dead and in heaven and they don't know, which is a possibility. They, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they died. They're in heaven. They're under the throne. They haven't heard the news. So they go to God and they ask God, how long, how much longer before you start judging those who live on the earth? It doesn't say lived. It says who lived present, right now, are alive, and avenge our blood. It didn't say avenged our blood because they killed us in the past. He said those people responsible for our death are, in fact, still alive on the earth right now. And when are you going to start judging them? Now, God can only answer the question one of two ways. He can say, hey, I started, you just don't know, let me bring you up to speed. Or he can tell them when. Those are only two options. Maybe another option that I haven't thought of, maybe. Now, I want you to notice what he says. Each of them was given a long white robe, and they were told to rest for a little while longer until the full number was reached of both 
reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been killed. So God says, listen, my judgment of the people responsible for killing you will not start until they have killed the rest of those whom I know servants, brothers of yours on the earth. Now, friend, at face value, you take it at face value. What does it say? Well, it says... I haven't started yet, and I'm not going to start until some more people are killed like you have been killed. Then I'm going to judge them for what they did to you, brutally murdering you. Now, by implication, you have to ask yourself the question. If the judgment of God has not started yet, then what are seals one, two, three, four? Seals one, two, three, and four cannot be the wrath of God if the judgment of God hadn't started yet. That is the only way to understand that, unless you're going to take it less than literal, and once you go less than literal, you get into allegorical, and you can make it mean anything you want. They asked a question, God answered their question, and in my mind, it establishes without question that God's judgment of those on the earth responsible for killing these people has not started yet and will not start until the rest of the people to be killed are killed. Then God says, I'm going to punish those people. Ladies and gentlemen, what that means in simple, layman, everyday, clean language is that seals 1, 2, 3, and 4 cannot be the wrath of God. That means that whenever the quote-unquote great tribulation starts, it is not the wrath of God. It is, in fact, the wrath of Satan. God is not going to kill you if you've been faithful. Show me anywhere in the word of God where God kills his own faithful people. Now, he does allow them sometimes to get caught up in the judgment he allows to come on them. The wicked, sometimes the righteous get caught up in it. That is true. But God is never directly saying, okay, I'm going to get you. Hey, these people said, hey, listen. Now when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the soul of those who had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. These are faithful people. They're holding on. They wouldn't give up. And because they wouldn't give up, they were killed. I have never seen in the word of God where God killed righteous people who were faithful to him. And I don't believe he's going to do it at the time when they need him the most at this time either. They're not dying because of the wrath of God. They're dying because of the wrath of man. And God allowed it and told him, I know the number. I know exactly how many of my people I'm going to allow to die. Which means, ladies and gentlemen, the issue is not staying alive. It's not about staying alive. It's about being faithful to the Lord. This is my problem with people. You're so worried about dying. It's not about dying. It's about being faithful to the Lord. Regardless of what he allows to come on you. I can't understand people who say, oh, the great tribulation, we got to be gone. It's terrible. You're going to die. Christians have been dying every day for 2,000 years. What's the difference? They're still dead. Don't get caught up in that nonsense. It's about hermeneutics, friend. It's about the text. Whether you're going to take the text at face value or whether you're going to apply some kind of non-literal understanding to the text. Now, in the Old Testament, God does, in fact, talk to his people Israel. Because that's the only people he's got. 
But it didn't say he wasn't going to have some more people of which we would then have to understand deeper meanings to what he was saying. So all of those people who tell you that the Old Testament can't apply to the church, you ask them, then how did they apply Joel 2, 28-32? Say, well, God cannot work with the church in Israel at the same time. Then you ask them, why did Jesus prophesy in all of the discourse that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and then 40 years later it happened during the church age? Must have been working with both. How many of you would tell me that Israel is not back over there due to God doing something with them? You mean Israel is back in the land now and God had absolutely nothing to do with it? No, you know better than that. That's a system contrived to fool you, not to give you clear meaning on the biblical text. Now, when someone says to you, the, the tribulation, they use that word kind of in a colloquial sense, the tribulation. You've got to ask them a question. Now, what are you talking about? Because in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and following, the time of distress is limited to no longer than three and a half years, never seven. So there's nowhere in the Bible that says that the tribulation is seven years. Please show it to me. I'm, I'm willing to be taught. Because it's not used there. The great tribulation is said to be something terrible time on the earth when the righteous are dying, not the wicked. The wicked are killing the righteous. But when God begins his wrath against the wicked, then I'm going to have a whole lot of time to be killing a whole lot of righteous people. By the time we get to those bold judgments, it's going to be too late anyway. So the great tribulation is an unknown period of time that God is going to allow his people to suffer. Now, last point. If the church, the word church doesn't appear in the Old Testament, but God is going to save Gentiles, that is announced in the Old Testament. He comes along and he uses the word elect, says my elect. So, well, the word elect is limited to only the Jews. Not so. The term elect is used three ways in the Bible. It can refer to elect Israel to service. Jews saved and lost are elect to service. You elect to service by birth. You are Jew. You were supposed to represent God on earth. You were supposed to help people to know God. That was a Jew's responsibility by being into Abraham. You were elect to service. Service had nothing to do with whether you were saved or lost. You could later be saved, but when you were born, on the day that you were born, you were elect as a Jew to be a representative of God before the world. That's election to service. But there were also Jews elect to salvation. Some Jews had the great privilege, all Jews, had the opportunity, I believe, to some degree, but you could be elect to service and to salvation. All Jews are not elect to salvation. You and I both know that. It hurts our hearts. They're not all elect to service. They're all elect to service, but they're not all elect to salvation. You got to be of the seed of Abraham, and then you got to come by faith to be a Jew elect to salvation. But Gentiles are also elect to salvation. 
No Jew, no Gentile is elect to service in the sense of Israel. But Gentiles can be elect to salvation. So when the Bible talks about the elect, you got to check the context. Is he talking about elect to service or is he talking about elect to salvation? So in the book of Daniel, you say, well, the only elect running around earth at that time were mostly Jews. That is correct. But it says nothing about what he's going to do later. We get to the New Testament and we throw in the word elect around and he's talking about elect Gentiles. You say, well, which one is he replying to? He's replying to all elect. Now, the great tribulation is Satan's wrath against God's elect. Anybody on God's side. He's not going to say, well, you know what? You people became Christians after church was gone. I'm not going to persecute you. I'm just after the elect of Israel. I'm just going to get them. Friend, of course not. Come on. The elect refers in salvation to Jews and Gentiles. And the great tribulation is going to be Satan's wrath against God's elect. In my book, God's Elect, The Great Tribulation, I explain this in great detail because it is an important issue has been very confused to people who want to make you believe that God's program for Israel and God's program for the church can never touch. And that simply is not true. Now, that does not mean that Israel doesn't have a future because they do. Separate and distinct in their own. They're going to have their land. They're going to finally live as God promised them. Abraham died believing that and God is not going to change the program while Abraham was dead. God is going to fulfill his promise. Just as he said. But the promise has been expanded there to include you to a certain degree. Because every one of you sitting in this room are elect to some of the privileges of Israel. The fact that you have salvation is through Abraham. The fact that you're able to enjoy some of the blessings of God that comes through that covenant you have right now. But it's through them to you. But you enjoy it and you enjoy it and you share in it. As a bride of Christ. Now, the big question is Matthew 24. Doesn't apply to the church. Oh, my. That always fascinates me when people tell me that. I say, well, you know, Matthew 24 doesn't apply to the church. Say, oh, is that right? Uh huh. Says, oh, okay. So tell me when is Jesus going to come back? Says, oh, no man knows the day or the hour. Say, where'd you get that? Matthew 24. So when I wait a minute. How can you take Matthew 24 to apply to the church when it's convenient for you, but it's not convenient, so it becomes all for Israel? Called having your cake and eating it too. It either does or it doesn't. It either completely doesn't, completely does, or is defined in context. Now, friend, one last thing. If I point to you and I say, this generation... How many generations are in this room? There's more than one. There's more than one generation in this room. So which one am I talking to? Am I talking to anybody in here over 65, which is a totally different generation from everybody in here under 20? Is why you over 65 can't understand what's going on. You feel like you're lost and act like you stepped out on the moon one day. What's going on? The world changed. I can't understand. When he says this generation... He's pointing and looking at all the people standing there. There were children standing there. There were old people standing there. There were middle-aged standing there. Which generation was he talking to? So, well, he had to be talking to the oldest one. Why? 
because it's convenient for your position, not because it's contextually based. It's not contextually based. This generation does not refer to just all these people standing there. He was talking about something totally different. Now, the reason I know that is because in Matthew 24, verse 3, the reason that is so different from Luke and Mark is because Matthew totally changed the question. He totally changed the question because he wanted to answer a totally different question, which he did, which is why you have Matthew 24, 3 to 31 reporting what he did. Now, tomorrow I'll show you. I'm going to show you so that you won't have any doubts why that text is so critically important and why you can see it right from verse 3. He laid, Matthew was brilliant. He laid it out so brilliant and so beautiful that everyone who reads it and don't want to see it won't. Because they're looking for an answer that's not in the text, ladies and gentlemen. Allegorical versus face value is the key. What we should have been doing this weekend is talking about hermeneutics, told time. You can get the answer yourself once you get your hermeneutic right. But if your hermeneutic is not right, then you're going to continue shopping at the Gerber's department store. Because Gerber's grinds your food up for you. It's real soft so you won't choke and swallow. And so we're all happy because we can eat Gerber's and we don't put no effort on us. But if you study the word of God first in terms of your hermeneutic, you get the hermeneutic right, then it makes so much more sense and it's so much easier to follow. May God bless us. May God anoint us. May God make sure that we're faithful to his word.